It is a great delight to be able to be here on campus and to be able to deliver uh, this lecture this morning on a very important subject, and that is the subject of our worship, and in particular, how our music connects with our theology of worship. In this lecture this morning, I would like to defend an assertion that most Christians throughout church history would have accepted really without question, but one that in more recent years, Christians have been very difficult to accept. And the assertion is this, music embodies theology. Now, I understand how difficult it can be for modern Christians to accept the fact that music embodies theology. Several hundred years of post-enlightenment rationalism has influenced us to see music as amoral, without any inherent meaning and merely neutral packaging for lyrics. But this is not how Christians in the past have viewed music and its role in life and worship. In fact, this is not how anyone, even unbelievers, viewed music prior to the Enlightenment. And it is certainly not how Scripture views music. And so my goal in this lecture is to introduce a biblical understanding of how music, really all the arts, embody ideas and therefore must be evaluated as to their fittingness for carrying particular lyrical content or use in certain circumstances, especially Christian worship. And then I will address specifically how two prominent theologies of worship have cultivated two very different kinds of worship music. A first important step in recovering what I believe to be a biblical understanding of music, is to remind ourselves of what the Bible teaches about the necessary connection between our theology and our behavior. I'd like to ask you to look at the first verse of Titus chapter 2, where we read, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what is Paul talking about here when he refers to what accords with sound doctrine? Is he talking about just other intellectual truths that accord with sound doctrine? Well, no. Notice that he tells us what kinds of things accord with sound doctrine in the following verses. So keep reading. This is what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, 
They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So in other words, what accords with sound doctrine or what adorns the doctrine of God our Savior according to this passage involves qualities of character that manifest themselves in life behavior. And notice that while some of what Paul lists in these verses involves specific actions like not being slaves to wine and wives submitting to their husbands, things like that, most of what he discusses here involve inward qualities, things like dignity, reverence, self-control, and purity. These are inward qualities that are in many ways difficult to precisely define or articulate. Words alone are often inadequate to describe these sorts of character qualities. Let's take reverence, for example. What is it? Clearly there must be an objective reality called reverence, but how would you describe reverence? It's difficult, right? But the difficulty in describing a character quality does not render it subjective. God commands us to be characterized by reverence, dignity, and self-control. These are what accord with sound doctrine. So we have a responsibility then to discern what these qualities are like and therefore cultivate them in our lives. We must also recognize that these qualities are in many cases non-verbal. We demonstrate these qualities or lack thereof through our behavior, through how we carry ourselves, our body language, and our vocal inflection. These are means of communicating inward qualities that extend beyond just what we say. If you doubt this, consider the next time someone speaks to you disrespectfully. What was disrespectful? What they said? Well, sometimes, but not always. Or was what was disrespectful how they spoke to you? How we speak matters just as much as what we say because the way in which we communicate expresses nonverbal qualities. So in other words, the sorts of qualities that Paul mentions in passages like Titus 2 are nonverbal embodiments of biblical doctrine. But as I mentioned, the challenge with qualities like this is that words alone are often inadequate to precisely define them. So, does that mean then that scripture is insufficient to communicate precisely what accords with sound doctrine? Well, certainly not. Because we must remember that scripture is more than merely abstract words. Of course, scripture is filled with words, but whenever you choose one word over another, whenever you put words into sentences and paragraphs, whenever you employ literary genre and artistic imagery, you are already embodying certain qualities that go beyond just the words themselves in isolation. Here's one example. 
Let's say that I want to describe to you the age of a senior adult in my church. Which of the following words would he prefer that I use? Ancient, elderly, frail, rickety, or seasoned? You see, each of these words is technically true. They each have the basic meaning of old, but each word, of course, as you recognize, conjures up different kinds of images and qualities about a senior adult. They embody qualities beyond merely factual information. They shape our conception of the person that I'm describing. This is even more true with metaphor. A metaphor is an image used to describe something else that is not actually that thing. My love is like a red rose. My love is not really a red rose. My love is not actually that thing, but the image I use is used to communicate qualities that cannot be adequately described by abstract words in isolation. Art embodies qualities and communicates them in ways that abstract words in isolation cannot. And in this very way, Scripture itself artistically embodies sound doctrine. The Bible is not an encyclopedia of doctrine. It's not even a systematic theology. It is a collection of artistically embodied doctrine. It is filled with imagery, poetry, narrative, and other artistic devices that do absolutely communicate truth through propositions, but they also communicate embodied qualities that accord with sound doctrine through artistic devices. Take what is likely the most well-known metaphor in Scripture, for example. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, God is not really a man on a hillside tending to literal sheep. We all recognize that this is an image meant to shape our inner conception of who God is. David could have characterized God in a more detached, propositional way by describing the way that God cares for his people and the way that he guides us and tends to our needs and protects us. But instead, David chose to embody all of those ideas and, and really much more through one concise, concrete image, shepherd. That one image embodies all of those ideas, ideas that would have either taken a whole lot more words to express or would have been virtually impossible to capture with non-artistic language. Even the most didactic portions of Scripture, the New Testament epistles, for example, are filled with imagery, careful word choice, precise syntax that don't just tell us right doctrine, although they do, they also embody qualities that accord with sound doctrine. They don't just inform our minds, they shape our hearts, they shape our inner conception of the truth. Kevin Van Hooser summarizes this well when he said, quote, It has been said that poetry is the best words put in the best order. Similarly, 
Because we are dealing with the Bible as God's word, we have good reason to believe that the biblical words are the right words in the right order, unquote. Leland Riken has similarly argued throughout his career that we need to understand that the literary aspects of scripture are essential to the truth that it communicates. Riken says, quote, the point is not simply that the Bible allows for the imagination as a form of communication. It is rather that the biblical writers and Jesus found it impossible to communicate the truth of God without using resources of the imagination. The Bible does more than sanction the arts. It shows how indispensable they are." Unquote. Riken argues this for exactly the issue under consideration in this lecture. Ideas are embodied in artistic forms. He goes on to say, everything that is communicated in a piece of writing is communicated through the forms in which it is embodied. Unquote. So, scripture commands us to be reverent, and then various artistic elements in scripture show us what reverence is like. Scripture tells us to love God, and then its artistic expressions embody appropriate love. Scripture admonishes us to be godly, and its artistic expressions form our conception of what godliness should be like. Art embodies qualities in this manner because art presents interpretation of the ideas that it carries. As Riken notes again, quote, artists do more than just present human experience. They also interpret it from a specific perspective. Works of art made, make implied assertions about reality. Unquote. So how so? Well, in exactly the same way that reverence and dignity and self-control accord with sound doctrine. Reverence is not just another way of articulating sound doctrine. Reverence embodies sound doctrine. It applies sound doctrine in real life. And in the same way, art can embody ideas. Again, Riken explains, the method of art is to incarnate meaning in concrete form. The artist shows and is never content to only tell in the form of propositions. The strategy of art is to enact rather than summarize." Unquote. This makes sense when we remember that any art, whether we're talking about poetry, literature, drama, music, all art is itself human behavior. Art is human expression. What we express through an artistic medium is not just ideas abstractly stated. An artistic expression is a person's interpretation of ideas. This is particularly true with music that has words. The words themselves express ideas, but even the word choices and the images that are employed in the words and even the word order already expresses an interpretation of those ideas. You add music and now the artist is further expressing interpretation of the ideas that are present in the lyrics. 
One of the best illustrations I think of this is the infamous example of Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to President Kennedy. Perhaps you've seen a video of that. The words that she sang were certainly not controversial, but her tone, her body language, and her performance style created a scandal. Notice how even Wikipedia describes the event. There's actually a Wikipedia entry called Happy Birthday, Mr. President. But listen, listen to how it describes it. Happy Birthday, Mr. President was a song sung by actress-singer Marilyn Monroe on Saturday, May 19, uh, 1962, for then-president, and that's a little long ago, for then-president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, at a celebration for his 45th birthday. Now, listen to what they say. Sung in a sultry voice, Monroe sang the traditional Happy Birthday to You lyrics with Mr. President inserted as Kennedy's name. Afterward, President Kennedy came on stage and joked about the song, saying, I can now retire from politics after having had Happy Birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. Alluding to Monroe's delivery, this is Wikipedia again, her delivery, her racy dress, and her general image as a sex symbol. So in this case, the textual content and even the musical form itself was far from offensive. And yet, Monroe's vocal performance, her delivery, her dress, and her image embodied messages that were missed by no one. The point is this, music in all of its complexities of melody and harmony and rhythm and instrumentation and performance style, music embodies interpretation of ideas that extend beyond merely just what the words themselves express. Of course, what everyone wants to know at this point is what are the precise specifics of what makes a particular song embody a particular theology? Well, we could certainly get into specifics of music theory and acoustics and physics and emotional resonance. But these kinds of discussions are admittedly difficult exactly because, as I've already mentioned, words are often too imprecise to articulate certain things. As someone once said, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Think about that for a moment. Very difficult to do because we're talking about very different mediums of communication. Music is actually more precise than words when we're talking about how music interprets the words at an emotional level. Music can express more nuanced interpretation of ideas than just a, a word or two in isolation can. Again, that's the whole point of art to give language to the interpretation of ideas that words in isolation would be in inadequate to express. This is, again, why God used art in Scripture itself. But this challenge doesn't mean that we cannot discern what music is expressing, any more than our inability to describe the physiological causes of a disrespectful tone of voice prevents us from recognizing it in another person. Anyone can discern disrespect, fear, anger, or dignity in another person simply by observing their facial expressions, their body language, and their vocal inflection. For example, 
If you ask me how I am doing, and I answer fine, the way in which I say it, that word, embodies a certain interpretation of that word that indicates whether I'm really okay, fine. Or whether I'm saying it in a sarcastic manner, fine. Or uh, an another message. So for example, if I come home from work and ask my wife how the day went, and she answers, fine with a grimace on her face and a sigh in her tone, I know there's more than just what is communicated through that word in isolation. Her manner of speech embodies messages that go beyond the word alone. And the same is true for music. You don't have to be a musician or a music theorist to be able to discern what kinds of interpretations are being made with various kinds of music. Contrary to a lot of caricatures and conjecture, this is a fairly universal phenomenon. There is a vast uniformity of agreement about what various music means. Since music is human expression, humans can discern what other humans are expressing because of their shared humanity. When you're watching a film and the scene is people playing on a beach, but the music is sinister and menacing, you know something bad is coming. That music embodied that message. The music is presenting an interpretation of the scene that you can't miss. This is a universal phenomenon. You take that same film and you take it to another country and you, and you put subtitles for the lyrics, they don't change the music because the music is communicating at a human level, not a cultural level. So the critical question then that Christians must always ask ourselves about a particular artistic expression, whether it's literary or musical or otherwise, the question we must ask ourselves to use Leland Riken's words is this, does the interpretation of reality in this work conform or fail to conform to Christian doctrine? Or in other words, do the qualities embodied in this work of art accord with sound doctrine? This brings us to the particular subject then of music used in worship. As I've argued, what worship songs do is more than just neutrally carry theological ideas expressed through words. If this were the case, then as long as the words are theologically correct, it really doesn't matter what musical forms or performance style carry those words. By the way, I hope you recognize here that even lyrics that are technically correct may already present an interpretation of biblical ideas that really don't accord with sound doctrine. This is beyond the scope of what I want to get to in this lecture, but just consider for a moment whether reckless or sloppy wet kiss accords with how scripture expresses God's love. These are not just neutral expressions of a correct biblical idea, God's love. They embody a particular interpretation of what God's love is like. And likewise, music is not just a neutral container for lyrical ideas. 
music embodies an interpretation of those ideas. So with worship songs, the music embodies both an interpretation of the particular words of the song as well as an interpretation of what is actually happening in the worship service itself. So before I give some attention to the music used in worship, we need to briefly talk about the fact that Christians today hold to more than one theology of worship. So being able to determine what kind of music accords with a particular theology of worship will first require us to think about our theology of worship. And that differs among Christians in this day. For simplicity's sake, I'll focus on what I would say are the two most dominant theologies of worship among Christians today. There are others, but these are what I would suggest are the two most dominant. The first is what I will call covenant renewal worship. This is a theology of worship that considers the Lord's Day corporate gathering to be one of covenant renewal in which God renews His covenant with His people through the gospel and His people renew their covenant with Him in responses of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and dedication. This kind of covenant renewal glorifies God because it highlights all of the work that He has done on our behalf and it sanctifies us as His people to mature in how we live our lives in, in light of the implications of that gospel covenant. Corporate worship disciples believers to live in a way that accords with sound doctrine. Here's how I described it in Biblical Foundations of Corporate Worship, that little book that was mentioned a few moments ago. Corporate worship is like renewing our gospel vows to Christ. Just like when we were first converted, God calls us to draw near to Him. Just like at our conversion, we respond with confession of sin and acknowledgement that we have broken God's laws. Just like when we were first saved, we hear words of pardon from God because of the sacrifice of Christ. Just like when we began our relationship with God, we eagerly, eagerly listen to His instructions and commit to obey. We are not getting re-saved each week, but we are renewing our covenant vows to the Lord, and in so doing, we are rekindling our relationship with Him and our commitment to Him and He with us. Worship services shaped by this covenant renewal theology follow the shape of the gospel. God reveals himself and calls his people to worship through his word. God's people acknowledge and confess their need of forgiveness. God provides atonement. God speaks his word. God's people respond with commitment. And God hosts a celebratory feast. Corporate worship that embodies this covenant renewal theology is dialogical. It is a conversation between God and His people. God always speaks first through His Word, and then His people respond appropriately to God's revelation. As Brian Chapel has helpfully demonstrated in Christ-centered worship, and as I demonstrated in Change from Glory into Glory, the liturgical story of the Christian faith, covenant renewal worship characterized believers in the early church and Protestants following the 17th, 16th and 17th century Reformation. Though differences certainly existed between various groups stemming from the Reformation, their theology of covenant renewal worship was fairly consistent. Songs 
within this covenant renewal worship service serve one of two functions. One, often psalms and hymns serve as God's words to us, either directly quoting or paraphrasing from Scripture as we did this morning. So they can be God's words to us. But second, psalms and hymns can also serve as our response to God's revelation. In both cases, choice of songs depends upon how the lyrical content fits within the dialogical covenant renewal service. Songs are not just lumped together into musical sets organized by emotional mood. But rather, songs are interspersed in the service with scripture readings and prayers throughout the dialogical gospel-shaped service. The goal of covenant renewal worship is discipleship, building up of the body. Every aspect of the service is chosen not for how it will somehow give a quote-unquote authentic expression to the worshipers or give them an experience what they presume to be an experience of God's presence, but rather how these elements of worship will build us up, maturing us by the Word of God. Really, music in a covenant renewal theology of worship is not actually very prominent. Music is important. As I've discussed, it provides an interpretation of the theology of the lyrics and it gives expression to that interpretation. But music is secondary. The music is selected and performed to modestly support the truth with sentiments that accord with sound doctrine. And an emphasis is given to reverence, self-control, sobriety, and dignity in how the songs are led, accompanied, and performed. Contrary to caricature, this kind of covenant renewal worship is deeply emotional. But the music is not intended to stimulate or arouse emotion. Rather, deep affections of the soul are stirred by the Holy Spirit through His Word. And music simply gives language to the appropriate responses to the Word. Emotion in covenant renewal worship is not often immediate or visceral or flashy. Rather, it is deeply felt in the soul. In fact, particularly because of commands in Scripture like Titus chapter 2, that Christians are to be dignified and self-controlled and reverent, care is given in covenant renewal worship to avoid music that would cause a worshiper to lose control. Christians with this theology have historically recognized that although physical feelings are good, they're God-given, they must be controlled lest our belly, a Greek metaphor for bodily passions, be our God, as we find in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Rather, since reverence, dignity, and self-control are qualities that accord with sound doctrine, music is chosen that will nurture and cultivate these qualities and affections of the soul like... <clears throat> Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Colossians 3.12, and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 
This covenant renewal theology takes note of the fact that qualities like intensity, passion, enthusiasm, exhilaration, or euphoria are never described in scripture as qualities to pursue or stimulate. They're never used to define the nature of spiritual maturity or the essence of worship. Musical choices from this covenant renewal perspective are not about new versus old or the canonization of one kind of music. Rather, it is about choosing musical forms that best accord with a covenant renewal theology of worship. So that's one prominent theology of worship today. But the second prominent theology of worship, really the more dominant theology of worship in our day, is sacramental worship. This term sacramental might strike you as uniquely Roman Catholic. And it is certainly true that medieval worship did become sacramental. However, advocates for this second theology of worship that I'm describing, largely impacted by Pentecostalism, also consider their worship, especially their music, to be sacramental. The goal of sacramental worship is to experience the felt presence of God. In overly charismatic forms of this theology, evidence of God's presence will include speaking in tongues and other miraculous experiences with extreme things like glory dust and being slain in the, in the spirit in some cases. But even with more moderate charismatics or even non-charismatics who have been what I call Pentecostalized, there is a certain expectation that in a worship service, the Holy Spirit of God will manifest himself in some sort of observable, felt, tangible way. And if we don't feel something intense, then something is wrong. This perceived experience of God's presence in sacramental worship is achieved by their very own words primarily through music. The sacramental theology began in Pentecostalism, but it's now expanded to other groups who wouldn't necessarily affirm Pentecostal theology of the spiritual gifts, but it has come to characterize to be the dominant characteristic of contemporary worship. Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth masterfully catalog how this happened in their book, Lovin' on Jesus, A Concise History of Contemporary Worship. Lim and Ruth are not critics of contemporary worship, but they are honest historians who demonstrate conclusively how Pentecostal theology came to form what we now call contemporary worship. Lim and Ruth carefully explain how this sacramental theology of worship and music began in Pentecostalism, but then spread to other non-charismatic groups, largely because of the church growth methodology of people like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels. They recognized the potential of Pentecostal worship for attracting seekers because it was exciting. Lim and Ruth note how the importance of particular styles of music that quickly stimulate emotion rose to significance not before seen in Christian worship. They observe, observe this, quote, No longer were musicians simply known as music ministers or song leaders. They now became worship leaders. 
The worship leader became the person responsible, they say, to bring the congregational worshipers into a corporate awareness of God's manifest presence through the use of specific kinds of music that create an emotional experience considered to be a manifestation of that presence. Lim and Ruth explain that few non-charismatic evangelicals today necessarily use the same language as Pentecostals, although I would say it's receiving a sort of resurgence today among young evangelicals. But they continue, quote, what has not waned are the root sentiments behind this theology of sacramental praise. A desire to encounter the divine through music and a sense that when God is present, he is present in active power. My point here is to demonstrate that these are two different understandings of the nature and purpose of corporate worship. Covenant renewal theology and a sacramental theology. And therefore these theologies manifest themselves in two different kinds of music that accord with these two different kinds of worship theology. One of the sad results of Enlightenment rationalism, as was quoted earlier from my book, was what it did to modern man's understanding of the nature and purpose of music. We just don't recognize this anymore. Pre-modern thought understood a distinction between kinds of music. Some music modestly cultivates the mind, the affections, and the will while other music is designed simply to stimulate the physical senses. Augustine and the Reformers, as was quoted, used the terms spiritual and carnal to describe the distinction between those kinds of music, while music in the art world has used terms like classical and romantic. The point here is that people saw a distinction that now has been lost. Since the earliest days of the church, Theologians with a covenant renewal theology of worship cautioned against using music that was simply designed to stir the feelings. For example, Clement of Alexandria said, we must abominate extravagant music which enervates men's souls and leads to changefulness, now mournful, then licentious and voluptuous, then frenzied and frantic. Rather, Clement argued that the church's hymnody should employ what he called temperate harmonies. And a good book on this, A New Song for an Old World by Calvin Stapert, shows how this was a uniform understanding among early church fathers. This emphasis was renewed during the Reformation. Martin Luther and other German reformers insisted that worship music embody reverence. Other German theologians like Conrad Donhauer required that music be sacred, glowing with love, humble, dignified, contrasted with profane music, which is unspiritual, frivolous, proud, and irreverent. Balthazar Meisner said, let all levity and sensualism be absent in worship music. On the contrary, let gravity and pious intent of mind prevail. John Calvin, too, insisted that music used in worship accord with its solemn purpose, having weight and majesty rather than being light or frivolous. Again, my point here is simply to show that what I have been arguing about music that accords with sound doctrine on the basis that music embodies theology is nothing new. 
Christians have affirmed this understanding for centuries. They, of course, sometimes disagreed over some aspects of what was acceptable, such as Calvin insisting on only unaccompanied psalms. But nevertheless, since they had a similar covenant renewal theology of worship, they all uniformly agreed that worship ought to be characterized by reverence and that some kinds of music embody qualities that simply does not accord with sound doctrine. You can see this evidenced by the fact that although Lutherans and Calvinists disagreed on a lot of things, and they, they even disagreed over whether or not we are permitted to sing human-composed hymns, they nevertheless shared their music freely between those two groups because they shared a similar theology of worship. They had the same understanding of what kind of music accords with sound doctrine. The Enlightenment changed all of that. Whereas prior to the Enlightenment, the purpose of music was considered to be the cultivation of noble affections and the calming of the bodily passions, the goal of music after the Enlightenment soon came to be the excitement of human passion. This impacted art music with the rise of Romanticism and it impacted broader culture with the creation of pop music. Music that is designed by businessmen in order to easily stimulate excitement. As mentioned earlier, churches that understood corporate worship to be a covenant renewal used music that modestly supported a fitting embodiment of doctrinally rich hymns and avoided music that simply, to quote Clement again, enervates men's souls. Sacramental worship, on the other hand, with its understanding of worship as felt experience of God, sees pop music as the perfect vehicle for that goal. It's an undeniable fact of history that contemporary worship music was birthed in the charismatic movement. It came out of that theology. Lim and Ruth demonstrate this, and charismatics themselves acknowledge this. For example, charismatic apologist Matthew Sigler says this in an article. Quote, many forget or don't know that contemporary worship was inextricably linked to the charismatic movement of the 1960s and 70s. This connection forged a musical style that was rooted in a particular understanding of the spirit and worship. He understands that music embodies theology. He goes on specifically, the singing of praise and worship songs was understood sacramentally. He's acknowledging this. That's where it comes from. God was uniquely encountered, he said, by the Spirit in congregational singing. That was the theology out of which the music was birthed. And the whole point of Sigler's article as a charismatic himself is to bemoan the fact that non-charismatics, even reformed churches, adopted the embodied theology of charismatic music without affirming the theology itself. Sigler goes on to say, during the 1990s, many congregations began to import the songs, sounds, and some of the sights, like hand-raising and clapping, of the praise and worship style. In many cases, what got lost, he says, was the robust pneumatology beyond, behind this approach to worship. 
In other words, many churches brought the form but didn't bring the theology of praise and worship into their congregations. And again, I get Sigler's point. He understands that music embodies theology. He knows that the music that emerged out of a charismatic theology accords best with that theology. I fully understand why it would concern him when churches who are not charismatic embrace the music but don't embrace the theology that embodies. It's inconsistent. This is exactly what I've been arguing, only I would point out something further. When non-charismatic churches bring charismatic music into their worship, the embodied theology of that music is forming the theology in the people whether or not they explicitly recognize or affirm it. Pentecostal music embodies and teaches a Pentecostal pneumatology and a sacramental theology of worship. And so my central concern this morning is this. Charismatic music accords with charismatic sacramental doctrine, but charismatic music does not accord with a biblical, reformed, covenant renewal theology of worship. Charismatic music actually embodies a sacramental theology that aims at experiencing the presence of God through viscerally intense music. What is so needed today, among otherwise reformed churches, is a renewed emphasis upon a covenant renewal theology of worship that intentionally incorporates songs that, are lyri that lyrically and musically embody what accords with sound doctrine. And in this way, we can be sure to obey the command that was given to us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thank you.